Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and the co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity and Inclusion Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Well, research shows that women and women of color still face considerable challenges in the legal profession as either outside or in-house counsel. How do those who stick it out in law firms become successful in their commitment to ascend while still juggling the family-related aspects of their lives that typically rest on their shoulders? What are the trade-offs for those who opt for in-house or even less traditional career routes? What are the strategic and personal considerations that sisters-in-law need to take into account for well-rounded and meaningful success to be achieved? Well, women in the legal world, whether in-house or outside counsel, face a myriad of challenges. And as my listeners have now become accustomed, here come some hard numbers to give some context to our conversation. Women now represent nearly 50% of law school graduates. 34% of all attorneys and law firms are women. They earn 77% of what men earn. 54% of female attorneys leave law firms after five years of practice. 75% of black female associates leave after five years of practice. And this number swells to 90% for black female associates in their seventh year of practice. Women equity partners represent 17%. Female equity partners earn 89% of the compensation earned by their male peers. Female minorities occupy 2% of equity partnerships in the 100 largest law firms in this country. And 24% of Fortune 500 chief legal officers are women. To add to this, consider these findings from a recent Women in the Workplace survey. Even where women work outside the home and have similar career demands as their husbands, they take on 30% more chores and 41% more childcare than their husbands. According to this same study, women are still more likely to take time out of their career for their partner's sake. Five times as many senior-level men have stay-at-home partners than their female peers do. So today, and against this backdrop, we will engage in a multifaceted conversation that will not only address the complex balancing act for women in law, but will provide our listeners with a few personal stories, some guidance, and some tools, thanks to the contributions of my three remarkable guests. We have Erin Weber, a dynamic colleague of mine at Littler in our Denver office where she is a shareholder. Erin is currently recovering from her eight years as office managing shareholder of the Denver office. She sits on Littler's board of directors and serves as the chair of the firm's shareholder candidate committee, which is the committee that oversees the elevation of Littler Associates to shareholder each year. She has a nine-year-old son, Grayson, who is obsessed with Hamilton, a husband, Brian, who stays at home with Grayson, and their great dame, Chloe. We are also joined by Frances Barbieri, who is Assistant Vice President and Senior Corporate Counsel with U.S. Bank. Before going in-house with U.S. Bank, Fran, as she's known, practiced management side employment law for eight years at Littler and another labor and employment firm. Fran earned her B.A. from the University of Missouri-Columbia and her J.D. from Washington University. Fran kickstarts her hectic days at U.S. Bank by mastering workouts on a surfboard and then wrangles two preschoolers and a 13-year-old Italian greyhound. Fran is based out of St. Louis, Missouri. And last but not least, we have attorney coach, law firm consultant, and author Mary Kazmarek. As a former practicing attorney, Mary has a passion for coaching professionals to higher levels of career satisfaction and success. 
Through Skillful Means Marketing, a Charlotte-based consulting firm of which she is the president, Mary offers business and professional development training, strategic marketing consulting, and individual coaching to professionals seeking to improve their practices and attract ideal clients. I must share this tidbit with our listeners if you promise not to blush, Mary. For the past three years, 2013 to 2016, readers of Legal Times, a national law journal publication, have selected Mary and Skillful Means as the number one business development coaching and training consultancy in Washington, D.C. Mary is also the author of Take Charge of Your Legal Career, a practical business development workbook, of which I am a proud owner and which is available on Amazon.com. Erin, Fran, Mary, I am positively and personally excited about this conversation. So comments on the above data that I have just shared from any of you. This is Erin. I'm happy to, uh, to kick it off. I have been labeled or criticized at times for being the eternal optimist and as you were going through those bullet points, facts, it's actually a great problem, I think, that we're here talking about this, and it's exciting. My first mentor was the only female in her law school class over 60 years ago, and so the idea that we're having this discussion is fabulous to talk about where we've come, uh, from, wh- from where we've come, and, and, and certainly we still have a long way to go, but um, we've made tremendous progress, I think, even uh, in her lifetime. So this is, ex- this is an exciting conversation. Yes. I would also say that while the numbers on the wage gap are disheartening, there were some of those numbers that I actually found pleasantly surprising. Namely, like what, the, the chief legal officer statistic. I was surprised to hear that 24% of chief legal officers are women. I think that's a pretty respectable number. I course hope that it would grow in the future, but I was struck by that being a little higher than the equity partnership number, and I wonder if that is due to the flexibility, I think, that the corporate environment can offer that I don't think most law firms are are at yet, and this isn't a dig at law firms, but I think it's due to the inherently different and more difficult nature of a client ser- law firms being a client service industry and how you have to be more creative when you're talking about providing that work-life balance. So that's something I know we're going to talk about a little bit later, but that's what struck me right off the bat. That's a great point, friend. Mary? Yeah, I, I'd like to <laughs> chime in here too, Kat. Um, I feel as though uh, this, you know, the statistics that you recited, they do sound kind of bleak, and uh, nobody would ever mistake me for an optimist, but I still think there are some positive developments that we can focus on here. I, particularly in my practice, I am struck by the significant increase in the number of very successful women-owned law firms that the numbers just miss. Here's a more positive statistic, and, and maybe we'll talk more about this in our program today, but in the past 10 years, the number of women and minority-owned law firms in the United States has grown from 60 to 150, according to the National Association of Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. Some of you might know this group as NAMWOLF. So we can focus on some of this positive information as well as we consider the impact of these other statistics that you mentioned. That's a great point, Mary. Erin. What are some of the major issues facing women specifically from a law firm perspective today? Sure. Well, Fran mentioned, uh, she kind of teed this up for me. Um, Certainly, I agree with her that sometimes it is more easy to achieve a work-life balance, perhaps in a corporate environment. I'm very lucky. Um, My law firm is extremely progressive. You know, I've never really felt uh, anything other than an equal to the men with whom I work. That said, I think I'm in the minority, uh, ironically. And so I think that there are these challenges for most women, uh, both at the associate and the, the shareholder or partner level in law firms. Uh, There's also the, I think, just the concept that we all feel, uh, certainly I do, of of just being spread too thin. I remember I had already uh, made shareholder when I had my son, 
And I remember a good friend of mine saying, you know, congratulations, you're now never going to do anything perfect again. And the <laughs> challenge, uh, it really became obvious to me. Those words have rung true so frequently for me as I so often feel that I am not able to give 100% to everything that I want to give or uh, put differently, I just feel like I, I'm spread too thin. So I think that that's a challenge for most of us um, who certainly, uh, whether you're at the associate or shareholder rank, and certainly when you uh, introduce a family into the mix. Fran, weigh in here, but from an in-house perspective. Well, when we're talking about some of the challenges that women face, I mean, I think that one of the biggest challenges that all working women face is taking time out to have children, as Erin touched on a little bit. And, you know, there are obviously things that you as individual women can do to make that life event have less of a negative impact on your career. But I also think that the culture that an employer sets around taking maternity leave or any leaves of absence is so important. As an employer, you can set the tone of how a maternity leave is perceived. Is it a time of celebration where we're happy that our coworker, you know, has experienced this great life event? Or, you know, is it acceptable to still take digs at women who are leaving? You know, I hear heard stories about, you know, your coworkers talking about your three month vacation, which is just, you know, horrifying. <laughs> but I think employers can do a lot in setting that tone. And, you know, I think having experienced both the law firm and the corporate legal world is that one challenge for for women and for anyone who struggles with work-life balance in law firms is, is the billable hour, and I know there has been some talk uh, in recent years, especially after the recession of, you know, thinking about redoing the business model, but I just think that as long as that's such a, an important metric of how law firm attorneys are their performances judged that that means that the person who works the most is going to get somewhat rewarded. So I don't have a solution on that, but I, I think that that's something that's inherent in the law firm world that isn't present in the corporate world. Like, you know, in the in-house legal environment, I don't think it would just never come up to ask how much a lawyer is working. It's just not something that, that we think about when we think about performance. And I have one final challenge I think that most women and all diverse employees everywhere face, and that's the age-old problem that those in power tend to hire and promote those most like themselves, and those in power tend to be older white males. So I think that when we talk about the challenges facing women, that it's so important that employers, legal and otherwise, make those conscious diversity and inclusion efforts that reach every single employee. And Cindy Ann, I know you can speak more to this because you're an industry expert, but I, <laughs> being a diverse attorney, I've worked on a lot of initiatives, and I think that any effective DNI program that's really going to make a difference has to include training from the CEO on down. And we have to think about recruiting and hiring efforts and how to reach a broader base of candidates and also ways to support current employees such as affinity or business resource groups. And that's something that I just is one of my favorite things about working at Littler was their affinity groups. It had a huge impact on me and my career. I think we're going to be talking about mentors later on. And I just, I had the most positive mentorship experience at Littler because of their affinity groups, and they can just make a huge difference. Great point, Fran. And before I turn to Mary to ask about the concerns that both you and Erin have talked about showing up in her consultations with the female attorneys with whom she works, Erin, I sense that you have bookmarked some thoughts regarding leave of absences. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm so glad you gave me the opportunity to weigh in because I think that Fran raises some great points. Certainly at Littler, with regard to the billable hour, and I'll address the leave of absence as well, we have had to really think differently. You know, even in the past few years, um, fortunately, we are. I'm at a law firm that measures success not just by the billable hour, um, but we look at 
folks' efforts and success in business development. And we look at folks' effort and success if they have a special area of subject matter expertise, for example. We look at folks' success if they're particularly good at management, let's say. So there are lots of ways to succeed at this law firm. I think we're ahead of the curve in that regard, and I think that probably a lot of, uh, of our sisters-in-law still struggle at other law firms that maybe haven't caught on to the problems that Fran has so eloquently identified. With regard to leaves of absence, you know, I currently am honored to chair our firm's shareholder candidate committee, which looks at the elevation of associates to shareholder each year. And and we actually have, uh, Fran, to your three-month point, we actually have a four-month paid leave of absence policy here at Littler. And inevitably, that leave of absence every single year you know, affects in a negative way certain candidates' numbers as they are being considered. So we have to take very, we always take extra precautions to make sure that those leaves of absence are not negatively impacting their ability to elevate. We have not only females, but also males who take that leave of absence as a primary caregiver. So we are kind of hyper vigilant to look at that, but we do actually have to proactively make sure that we're monitoring that and make sure that you know, some numbers that we may look at at first glance and, and seem awfully uh, low are not because of a, of a leave, and, and then we'll make those adjustments. So Mary, talk to us about what else you are seeing and hearing in addition to the great comments that both Aaron and Fran have just made on this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be hard-pressed to limit my comments here because I believe that Fran and Aaron have both raised so many really important issues. And, you know, I'd like to comment briefly on, on something that Fran said before I, I run into a couple of comments that I'd like to make on the topic, what I'm observing in my sure. coaching clients and the firms I work with. You know, Fran mentioned these issues of uh, life in a law firm having to do with billable hours, meeting those requirements, and also the fact that, you know, change has to come from the top down. And I think in a corporate setting where we have less of this adherence to tradition and uh, sort of emphasis on, well, this is the way we've always done it. What's wrong with these young people? Why do they want all these changes? Corporations are over that. Their shareholders require them to be over that. But not so much in a private law firm setting. And so we still have got some traditional, we, we used to call them values, and now I just call them traditional behaviors because there's no value around asking a, you know, a person who is incredibly talented, who's very committed to the organization, to have to behave in ways that cause that person to really feel like their life is out of whack and out of balance. So that's one point I wanted to make. But the others have to do with this kind of what I think is a double whammy that I see for many of the women who I coach and in the training programs I offer. You know, the double whammy has to do with the fact that law is first and foremost an apprenticed profession. You can't learn to be a lawyer without having a mentor, uh, having someone whose behavior you can model yours after, who provides opportunities for you to practice, you know, before you become perfect. And so because of that, the, here's the other piece of the whammy. The practice is traditionally dominated by white men. I mean, that's what your statistics at the outset uh, indicate to us. So, you know, a lot of times uh, more junior women, maybe less experienced women attorneys, they find themselves being mentored as apprentices by men who don't really understand the issues that they face. It certainly has been my observation, and I think you would agree that in our Western culture, women are socialized differently from men. Absolutely. Uh, and they don't necessarily recognize the natural advantages they have when it comes to building business and developing influence. And typically, unless those men are very enlightened, and there are a lot of those kinds of guys out there, but unless they are enlightened, they won't appreciate that, and they won't have a sense of how to capitalize on that in the women who they are mentoring. Absolutely. Mary, you touched upon mentorship. Can you talk a little bit more about that, both for those in firm life and for inside counsel? Yes. And one thing I'd like to comment on, uh, piggyback on something that Erin said at the outset when she was talking about, you know, finding 
having many priorities and somehow finding balance and her friend commenting to her, you'll never do anything perfectly uh, again, you know, give that up. When we're in a profession such as our legal profession, you know, we need more seasoned, uh, experienced professionals to serve as trusted advisors to us as we develop in career and otherwise develop professionally. It's the rare individual who can become an excellent attorney without help, support, guidance from others. However, you know, mentorship implies typically a sort of a one-on-one relationship with a more senior colleague. And I have come to prefer the concept of a career board of directors over just this one-on-one. Talk to us about this board of directors. Yeah. So your career board of directors, and by the way, they don't need to know, these individuals, that they're part of your board of directors. You don't have to give them a job description or (laughs) sign them up or offer them any kind of compensation. But it's a concept that we can all relate to. You know, an organization, a corporation has a board of directors, people from different backgrounds who are knowledgeable about the industry or business of the organization, but they bring these different points of view, uh, different talents to the table. And that's what we want as uh, developing attorneys. We want to identify a number of different people, maybe a client contact, uh, a more senior attorney at your firm, someone you meet and admire through your affinity group activities, or, you know, another influential professional. And having, I guess I would say, no more than five board members is probably a good idea. They're going to, as you talk to these various people about issues of concern, they're going to bring to you different points of view. And as a result of sort of listening to and synthesizing those different points of view, you're going to be able to develop a well-informed strategy for different aspects of career development. You know, I just think it's so much more beneficial than focusing on one person as the answer person, because I don't know who that person is and whether they even exist. So, Mary, you talk about different points of view, and that begs a question regarding the issue of same-gender mentoring. Share your thoughts about the opportunities that come with same-gender mentoring, but also in the limitations and the missed opportunities with a strict adherence to these types of matchups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that you know, although it, it sounds good and it may look good to be working with someone who is of your same gender, perhaps also a, if you are a person of color, the same, I think having a board rather than a single mentor helps a professional to avoid the limitations and the potential missed opportunities that can result from working with just one person. Even if that individual is, you know, very successful and you have a lot of respect for that individual, you still don't want to, you know, tune in to just one channel. We have a lot of commentary in our society right now about how many of us uh, live in a bubble. We listen to others who just have our point of view, and we recognize that as being potentially damaging to just, you know, sort of be in our, um, the echo chamber of what we think and what we believe. And I think the same goes for mentorship. I often suggest to coaching clients that they look for people in their organizations or otherwise who have, and and listen to this because this is important, who have the type of career success that they are seeking. Because what is successful to me in terms of my job, maybe it has to do with balancing various priorities in my life. And if that's the case, you know, the the biggest rainmaker in our organization or, you know, the person who's on all these boards and committees and is very well known, that's not going to necessarily be the kind of success that I can emulate at this point in my life, maybe later, but not at this point. So, you know, and making sure you know what success is for you, having a variety of people you can look to for input, I think that's really the way to go. Now, Fran, I want to, I hope I can bounce to you here. You know, another concept that we hear a lot about in, in terms of professional development is sponsorship. And sponsorship is a different concept from mentorship and even from the so-called board of directors. These are people who, you know, go beyond advice and create opportunities for those who they are sponsoring. 
Is that something that you see in your organization, Fran? It is, and we are actually in my local area making a conscious effort to increase sponsorship opportunities, especially for our diverse employees. And I think that, you know, the way that I typically see a sponsorship opportunity arise is when, you know, an employee's direct manager and maybe people who know them well, like their mentors, can bring to a senior leader's, maybe an executive's attention that, wow, we have this really great employee down here. He has so much potential, but I think, you know, they're ready to be to move on up. And to make that introduction, and then the senior leader then is in a position to where, you know, their voice is going to be heard when they're creating opportunities for this person. So I think, you know, it is something that, I am seeing, but I think, again, it takes conscious effort to look around and see what opportunities there are for sponsorship. Erin, mm-hmm. any testimonials one way or another on this issue? Sure. I think that I really like Mary's idea of the board of directors and, in fact, at her recommendation years ago, employed that myself. I think that, like she said, it encourages you to have a more diverse group of viewpoints. I think back to when I was, I think in junior high, I remember where I was when I had this conversation with my dad. He was a state court judge and he was leaving to go speak to a a women's bar association, I think in St. Louis. And, you know, he shared with me in a very, you know, matter of fact story. He said, I'll go speak at any bar association that requests. But he said, it's always interested me that this particular bar association that the women only join the women's bar associations. Why not join all of them? Why not join the the, the, the St. Louis Bar Association? So, so that you're not limited, I guess, in your views. And so I just remember that story kind of affecting me. And as a result, I, I think I uh, just joined everything and, and never felt that gender was a prohibitive factor in my career. But I think to that point and marrying it with Mary's, you know, the more folks you have in your corner, the more folks from whom you seek advice and counsel about your career path, the more mentors and or advocates you're simply going to develop for yourself. It's just going to happen. So I I do think the idea of a board is is a very good one. Great. I I, want to switch gears here for a moment, and I want to talk about networking and the likability factor. Erin, talk to us. (laughs) Well, certainly, you know, yeah, everything, I, I suppose it's easier if it's easier to uh, connect with folks who you like, right? But I have always maintained that the essential focus of our essence as attorneys, I think, is that we have to do a good job. You have to do good work. You know, I may really like Mary and Fran and want to go out and have a cocktail with them or you, Kat, um, but if you're not, if I'm not confident that you can handle my matters uh, with success, either individually or, you know, through your colleagues, the likability factor is somewhat moot. So certainly, I do think it's important. For example, I try very hard to have good relationships, even with opposing counsel, because I think it benefits and behooves my clients to be quite honest, when there's a battle to be fought, we've got to fight it, right? But to the extent that I can get along, even with opposing counsel, and we can maintain some degree of likability, uh, I think that that uh, inures to everyone's benefit. You know, I've heard a, a judge that I've done several panels with say again and again, all you have is your reputation. And I think that likability is, is somewhat critical to that just getting along either with your clients or the opposing counsel internally, you know, it's, it's important. And I think that you can develop a, a reputation for being unlikable and that can cause some real damage. Fran, one big reason that drives those who are clamoring to go in-house is because they are tired of the constant pressure of having to make rain. And this issue actually transcends gender. But let's engage in some misbusting, if you will. Does business development necessarily stop just because you go in-house? What are the realities of the business of law in today's corporations? I tell you, I am constantly surprised at the amount of networking I do in my corporation on a daily basis. I think something that I really didn't appreciate before I went in-house is that Law departments are not revenue generating, and we do not make any money for the company. We are only cost centers. 
So I think because of that and because of the fact that some businesses, luckily not my employer, but some businesses view lawyers as more of the barriers to doing business rather than partners, I think we really, as in-house lawyers, we, we strive to prove our worth and to show how we can add value. So, you know, I'm an, I'm an employment lawyer for my company, and there are some things that the business has to come to me for, like drafting a separation agreement for someone who's leaving the company. They can't do that on their own. But I want my business partners to want to come to me even when they don't have to, and I want to be seen as someone who can really add value to their business um, rather than just kind of a service provider. So that means that I have to really know the businesses that I support and what they yeah. do, and I have to get my internal clients to like and trust me. So I put a lot of effort into fostering those relationships. I schedule meetings one-on-one -on -one with leaders to let them know both about what like some legal updates that might affect their world and also to show that I'm interested in learning what's going on in their businesses so I can offer the best legal advice that I can. And generally just showing that I can help make the business run more smoothly and be more profitable. So they'll, they'll want to call me and get me involved in their projects and not just see me as, oh, you know, we have to run this through legal. Let's see what they say. Because I think that is an attitude that some people can have. So networking myths effectively busted. <laughs> Mary, I happen to know how assisting your attorney clients with relationship building and networking is a consistent theme in your practice. Enlighten us about the importance of this component and particularly with respect to the unique challenges that women in our field, whether in-house or in law firms, may face. Well, you know, such a great question. And picking up on, on some of the comments that Aaron and Fran made, I think the challenges that women attorneys tend to face, whether they're in corporate life or uh, in a law firm, they have a lot to do with the way we're socialized in our Western culture. You know, for example, women, I, I hope our other, you will all agree with me on this point, but I think we are raised to prioritize doing what we call important work or substantive work, getting it done, laundry, you know, feeding children, uh, doing the, the work on the desk. We are uh, raised to prioritize those kinds of activities over what we might call more political or influence building types of activities. A man, a male attorney, I typically will observe uh, is much more likely to, at the drop of a hat, uh, important client contact is in town, he will take a call and go out and have a social beverage with that person, despite the fact that there's a ton of things, you know, to be done at work, at home, or otherwise. Do women um, guilt? Pardon me? And women, do they guilt about uh, this? Yeah, totally, <laughs> right? And yes. a lot of times they just won't ever, they won't even think to take advantage of the opportunity. Again, I think it goes back to the way many of us have been raised in our families. Women also tend to flinch from anything that smacks of self-promotion. You know, this idea, you know, Fran was talking about, I, as she was speaking, I jotted down the word sales. You know, her, the meetings that she has, uh, getting to know her internal clients, all of that is an aspect of sales. You know, right. we're all in sales all the time, and women tend not to, they think that's there's something a little... Uh, Aggressive. Just, it's not yes. nice, is it, Mary? No, and it's just <laughs> yucky, but we have we're to do that. We're supposed to be nice. We're supposed yeah. to be nice. Well, we have to figure out how to softly and effectively build business opportunities. And Kat, having worked with you and also with Aaron, you two have got it going on when it comes to this. <laughs> you know, you know how to do that in a, uh, an appropriate but a meaningful way how to indicate to the people you're interacting with the value that you have to offer. And I'm sure that that's true of Fran as well. Another challenge, uh, and Aaron referred to this before, I call this getting stuck in the what I call the friendship box. Women tend to do this much more than men do in our Western business culture. When they connect with other people, women particularly, let's say in a networking setting, a woman is much more likely to default to conversation about children, family, 
social activities, school, whatever, and it seems to be harder for women to segue into a business conversation. And I challenge you to watch men, even very young men who are new to business, they rather quickly make a segue from a little bit of chit-chat, polite chit-chat into uh -huh. a business conversation. And to Erin's point, yeah, your friend can't send you business because she likes you. Exactly. You know, your friend can only send you business if you are the real deal. And so we have to start getting comfortable talking business with prospects and clients yes. so we can qualify ourselves. Yes. Mary, let's throw in some other demographics. What happens realistically when we add elements like race or ethnicity to the business development mix for women in our field? Well, you know, here in 2017, we have some bad news, but we have some good news and some really, really good news, particularly for women attorneys of color. And that has to do with just the influence of affinity groups. Fran was talking about that before, but affinity groups like the National Bar Association, uh, the Hispanic National Bar Association, NAPABA, which is the acronym for the National Asian and Pacific Attorneys Bar Association, participation in these groups has increased significantly in the 15 years that I have been consulting now and coaching and has created fabulous opportunities, really improved opportunities for attorneys of color to connect with uh, business decision makers who share the similarity with them of uh, race, in some cases of gender, ethnicity. It's just fabulous to see the business connections that are being made as a result of connections in those groups. I want to just briefly talk about a success story that one of, this is one of my coaching clients, an African-American woman attorney who I worked with uh, two years ago. When we first started working together, she was, uh, she's a rather extroverted person. She really enjoys going out and meeting with people and chatting them up and hearing what they have to say. But at the time, I felt that, you know, when we first started working together, I felt that her activities were too random and that she was getting stuck too often in that friendship box that we talked about. So she started really sculpting. And she got very strategic about where she was going to network. Her love of it will never fade, but we wanted to talk about where could she go where she could make these really influential connections that would lead to business for her. And I happened to attend a presentation that she gave a few months ago at her firm where she talked about her involvement in all of these various groups that I mentioned and how she decided to curtail some of those activities so she could really focus in on and become very bonded with people uh, in the National Bar Association with other attorneys that she met there. And she demonstrated to us in her presentation how as a result of, of becoming very intentional about developing relationships with people who she liked and enjoyed and who she felt that you know she could be helpful to, how that has led to this wonderful you know, flow of new business opportunities. I mean, she's really, in just a couple of years, has achieved that sustaining practice. Right. That, that is the, that's the gold ring. That's what we're all very, looking for. Very helpful. Speaking of the gold ring, Aaron, so you get the gold ring and you make partner. Are you all set? Do you never have to do another Bar Association event? I, I don't have a gold ring. I did make <laughs> partner. Um, of course, of course not. That, that would be too easy. Um, but I think that, you know, engaging in these activities that we've been discussing certainly puts one in a better spot to uh, then move forward with life as a shareholder or a partner. For example, the board that Mary has discussed uh, should continue to serve as a support group for, for someone who ha has made a shareholder or a partner. Um, Obviously, that person now is a little bit on his or her own, right? Now you've got to go out and, uh, at least in part, develop your own work or develop your own subject matter expertise. Certainly here at Littler, we make sure that folks are prepared to do that so the transition isn't quite as shocking. But you've got to, we, we talked about self-promotion a little bit, you know, you've got to be able to do that not only outside the firm with clients, but inside the firm. We all have read the studies, and they're, they're pretty interesting, but also 
I guess a little troubling, where women are so quick to give credit for their success to their team or to others. Uh, whereas I, I remember this article; it was hilarious. It was a study, and and they they interviewed five, I think, male athletes and uh, about their success, perhaps after the Olympics or something. And they all said, "Well, it was a result of hard work and all these things I've done over the years, all the sacrifice I've done." And every single female interviewed said, "It was my team." And I don't necessarily think that we have to change that. I, I will never, I can never imagine myself saying it's all the hours of hard work I put in. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, it is my team, and I'm not going to change the way that I promote, but certainly I think it's good for us to be aware that we need to make both clients and our internal colleagues aware of what our individual talents and perhaps areas of expertise are uh, so that as you move forward in the shareholder role, uh, you can do it really kind of on your, on your own merits. Erin, what are some techniques that have personally worked for you in this area of self-promotion? Sure. I remember when I was young, I got a t-shirt on vacation because that was what we did. We went on vacation and picked out your t-shirt. And I got one that said, anything boys can do, girls can do better. And I was raised in a household that uh, really kind of viewed, I, I never, I, growing up, I never felt that because I was a girl, I was in any way a lesser human or could do less in, in any way. And so I've always kind of had that mentality and have never approached things, approached really any activity and said, I can't do this. But in terms of going forward as a shareholder and, and developing business and developing or finding success, I think it's important for people to find what you like and what you're good at. I, I think that when I talk to folks, my colleagues perhaps, who are unhappy in the law, men and women, oftentimes they're in an area of the law that they just don't like. It, it's just a bad fit. And it's important, first and foremost, I think it's important to like what you do. But when you're looking to expand your business and to expand your contacts and to have success either as an associate or a shareholder at any level, I think it's important that you like what you do and that you like the folks with whom you're working. That's critical. You know, Mary's commented several times on getting outside the, the friend uh, group, and I think that's important. And we as women have to learn to ask for the business. I think you can do both. I, I do have uh, a lot of good friends who have actually helped me. For example, I have a a good friend who's a sommelier. She is a wine expert. And so uh, I like wine. I like her. And so a couple times a year, uh, I have her come to the office and we invite all of our female clients uh, in Denver. And we have kind of a wine tasting and we do various pairings. And she's hilarious and she's a great entertainer. And, you know, that's enjoyable and all the clients love it. You know, you, you don't have to be golfing. You don't have to be smoking cigars. You can find things as a woman in the law that you like and that you think your colleagues may enjoy as well. That sounds very balanced. And since we're on the subject of balance, let me ask all of you, are there some non-negotiables that you lay down for yourselves that, that make balance possible? For instance, hard stop hours on certain days of the week or non-travel days for business like Sunday afternoons or mandatory Sunday breakfasts or a 6 a.m. gym time or no phone zones. Fran, jump in. I would say that I have two. The first is the early morning gym time, and it's more like 5 o'clock, and I do make sure to do that. And it's funny because I never used to be an early morning person until I had kids and I realized that that's the only time it's going to happen. But just making sure that I get exercise really makes me feel like I can take on the rest of the day. So that's really important to me. And also I try to have those precious hours between, you know, coming home from work and the kids' bedtime where I try not to look at my phone. You know, sometimes there's something going on where it's just unavoidable, but most days that's a pretty hard rule at our house. Good. Erin? Oh, I'm terrible at this one. Um, <laughs> I would say, so I'm very lucky. I can survive on very little sleep, and so I can sacrifice uh, a lot of sleep hours for other things. I think that probably the one uh, thing that I really try to hold sacred is when I am home, because I do travel a fair amount, 
and spending time with my son. I really try to make it quality time. I put my phone away and, and I'm talking an hour at a time. I'm not talking, you know, half a day. I'm talking, you know, during the dinner time hours or when I'm putting him to bed. I really try to focus on him. You know, he's at the age where he can tell uh, when I'm distracted or when I'm reading emails. So I try to set it aside and at least for the little time that I have, make it very good quality time with him. That's worth it to me. Good. Mary. Well, let's see. It's so funny. You know, I coach people to create these kinds of uh, rituals, habits for themselves, really to help them to reduce stress and recognize that it's all about priorities. Work for many of us, our professional work, because we love it, because it uh, rewards us well. It, work is often a key priority, but you know, having time for family, friends, other activities is so important. And that's going to, you know, one of the themes that, that I wanted to sort of share this afternoon is priorities. We all understand this concept that priorities shift. You know, when we're working on a project with a client, we get it, that priorities get changed up based on new information coming in. And our lives are the same. When an individual is younger in career, a lot of times that might be when they, they uh, find their partner, they decide to have a family, et cetera. And so that's a time when sometimes career goes a little bit to the back burner to make time for, you know, the priorities are changed up because the family obligations are, are more meaningful and important at that point. And then there's another shift. I'm at a point in my life right now where my children are graduating from high school. They're getting ready to leave the nest. And so I realize that time is short to reinforce those connections and make sure we celebrate family. Not that we haven't always done that, but that's become a big priority for me recently. And yes. I do find myself putting down the work uh, at a fixed time every day, unless there's an emergency, putting away the phone, you know, making sure we have quality time together, the four of us. Those are healthy practices. And in addition to those healthy practices and those rules, let me go to the other end of the continuum, if you will, and, and ask you about your guilty pleasures. For instance, I have a delightful weekend escape that brings a certain downward dog like respite to my own hectic practice. I am a certified Kansas City barbecue judge. Oh, great. <laughs> what, what are your guilty pleasures, ladies? Uh, this is Erin. I suppose uh, there's, a, there's a brief period of time when on a plane you have to turn off your devices, but you cannot yet take out your laptop. It's approximately 12, 13 minutes. During that time, I generally catch up on my binge television watching. I just finished Homeland and, uh, and now am uh, well into season three of The Affair. So that's it for me. <laughs> Love and then it. you get that same 12 minutes on the way down as well. So that's always Yes. Good. That's 24 <laughs> minutes of commercial-free time on Netflix. That's right. <laughs> Fred? Honestly, it sounds kind of um, nerdy, but this has always been my biggest interest, and that's just reading. Um, you know, I thought after – I had kids and everything in life gets more hectic that I might not have time, but I can still squeeze it in. Um, and I just, I love reading books for fun, even if I've been reading at work all day. <laughs> and Mary? Well, it's, for me, it's the two Ps. It's politics. I am an absolute politics junkie. Uh, <laughs> I will, at the drop of a hat, I'll get into conversation or, you know, do, take in a news flash on something of interest. And the other P is pole dark. I don't, you know, you all are talking about your binge watching there, Erin. I don't know if you've ever watched the new Poldark series on PBS. Not, Not yet, to be missed. It seems like that will go into the lineup. So let's explore the issue of flexibility here for a moment. Many organizations are still working through the flexibility stigma that does exist. To quote the comprehensive 2016 Gallup report on women in America work and life well lived. And I quote, flexible work cultures succeed only when they are based on trust, authenticity, and accountability for performance. Comment. This is Fran. Um, I was, you know, I'm fortunate that I feel like I'm at a company who is over the hump, that U.S. Bank has made flexible working arrangements 
a norm, I would say, for most groups within the organization, particularly telecommuting and the ability to work from home, you know, a couple days a week. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely not something that just women take advantage of. I, I understand the resistance to it. I think there's a lot of fear that people aren't going to work if we let them work from home. And we have seen that that's simply not true, that, you know, a good employee isn't going to turn into a slacker just because they're working, you know, in yoga pants at home. And if anything, they work a little harder during the day because they know they're getting a payoff, you know, that they're going to, when they stop working at 5 o'clock, they immediately can turn to something that they want to do or need to get done at home. And if their performance really does suffer, we address it just like we address any other performance issue and we don't let it continue if um, it's a problem. And, you know, it's one of those benefits that employees tell us, like, is life-changing and that even if, you know, we might not be the most competitive in other benefits, like pay, that if they can keep that flexibility, that they, they'll be loyal to, to us. And there's, there's other things. I don't think, you know, telecommuting is a big one, but there are other flexibility initiatives that can work that are maybe not as earth-shattering. One other component that I've seen adopted in a lot of groups at my company is the idea that meetings don't have to be face-to-face. You know, we can use WebEx, we can use video chat, and that really not only does it save in expenses, but it saves everybody some time and time away from their family. Another thing I think that this could even possibly be translated into law firms is that in my job, we rotate certain on-call duties of our job. So when I know that I'm going to be on-call for a certain thing, I know that that week I might be working late and will have less flexibility that week, but I know that, you know, the other weeks, usually I do have more flexibility. And I wondered if that could be something that law firms could do with associates, you know, like a group of associates on-call one week to do take those last-minute urgent projects and then the rest of them know that they're not on call. Um, One final thing I wanted to point out about flexible workplaces is that especially with the, um, you know, the millennials, the younger generation, it is not a woman-man thing. It is that employees want more balance in equal shares. Men want to be involved in child rearing right from the start. And that that's something that's really not limited to women. And that, you know, that makes me hopeful that, we're getting to a point where flexibility isn't looked at as a woman thing and that we can make meaningful changes that in the future will allow all employees to feel that sense of balance. So that was my long-winded answer. That's a very meaningful perspective that you just offered, friend, very uh, on point. Erin, do you have anything that you want to add to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that Fran's right on, especially with regard to her observations of millennials. I mean, we have noticed in the law firm life, I mentioned our four-month paid leave, and both men and women are taking that. We also offer lots of paths because we have seen over the years that associates, and, and this kind of goes to Mary's point, that priorities change over time that for perhaps a few years at some point, maybe children are young, maybe a parent is ill, whatever the case, folks need to go off track, off their shareholder track for a while, and, um, but, but still want to contribute and still want to be a working attorney. So we allow alternate paths, alternate career paths for that. Really, I think as a law firm, we recognize those needs. And to be honest, and, and to the millennial um, nod that Fran brought up, if we want to retain that talent, which we do and in which we've invested, we've got to embrace that change and we've got to find ways to accommodate the desires of these folks. And so I think we're doing a good job of that. We can, we can always improve, obviously. And with Littler being a microcosm of your world, Mary, speak to us about the flexible work tracks that you hear about with the large law firms that you work with. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're, we're all three of the same mind, four of the same mind here. Most firms I work with have a flexible work track for men and women. I mean, they just can't attract the talent they need without it. And, you know, it's a real option these days. It's not one of those back in the day when I was practicing law, when I was working in law firms doing uh, business and professional development work, it was kind of a 
you know, we said that it was a real career path, but we recognized that anybody who went down that road was going to get sidetracked and their career was not going to advance. That's not true anymore. I think the question the attorney should ask him or herself in considering what kind of work makes sense for me now, what way of working makes sense for me now, is, you know, it goes back to that defining your own career success. And if your career success at any point, and, you know, priorities will change, but if it includes balance, you know, time, flexibility, then taking a flexible track may make the most sense at least for a period of time, with the recognition that you're not, you know, this is um, so much more mainstream and uh, appropriate in 2017 than it ever has been before. Right. Thank you. In the few minutes that we have left, ladies, I've got a couple of questions for you. In her book, Lean In, and specifically in the fourth chapter entitled, It's a Jungle Gym, Not a Ladder, Facebook Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandberg urges professional women to be more open about taking risks in their careers, and given that perfect meritocracies don't really exist, says, and I quote, and I love this quote, nobody is doling out tiaras to us. In so doing, Sandberg is urging women to rock the boat, push themselves, and to master the art of the ask. While her sage advice transcends professions, we are members of a traditional, risk-averse, don't-rock-the-boat profession, who are also tasked with the expectation to act nicely, as Mary was talking about before. Mary, square all of this up for us, please. (laughs) Well, I will try. I think that if you love what you do, and that's always the the first requirement to be successful in any career, you have to really enjoy it because there are going to be things you're going to have to do that are not, they don't feel natural, they don't feel comfortable, like so-called the ask. But if we love what we do, we can learn and implement whatever behaviors we need to that will help us to progress along the way and to, to develop more opportunities. And in our more traditional profession, our law practice and and some organizations are a little bit more traditional as well, you know, we want to start thinking about developing this positive influence that we've all been talking about. Because when we are positively influential, when people see the value we have to offer, when we go out of our way to form positive relationships, when we are liked by those, by our internal clients and our external clients, then we can ask for things that we need and want, and people can hear us. Right. And if the law firm leadership track is simply not in the stars for certain legal professionals, Mary, what are some of the options that allow for our sisters in law to achieve meaningful balance? Yeah, I think... Courage is required to look at yourself closely in your current work and determine whether it's a good fit for you or not at this point in your life, or if it may be in a relatively short period of time. We really have to be courageous and self-aware. And talking with our career board of directors, they can help with the self-examination process, uh, help us to decide with the input of people we respect Is this going to continue to be the right fit for me? How do I achieve that meaningful balance? And, you know, for people who are unhappy in law practice, and I was one of them, I often suggest that they think about the work-related skills they enjoy the most and extrapolate from there, you know, what kind of work, what type of environment would suit them the best. I mean, for me, I loved working in the law firm. I really enjoyed my lawyer colleagues and the other professionals and others who were part of the firm, but I did not like to practice law. I found it, you know, to be, for me at least, not particularly interesting or motivating. Mary, I can see many listeners nodding their heads very vigorously out there. All three of you clearly have a strong internal locus of control regarding your respective destinies and your ability to achieve a meaningful balance between life and law. That's clear. But organizations have a critical role to play in a quest that still eludes many. Again, in drawing upon the Gallup report on women in America, which I referred to earlier, as the report notes, 
and I quote, too many U.S. organizations continue to follow policies created in the 1990s, if not the 1950s, or they change their policies but forget to bring their culture along. Now is the time for leaders to create modern workplaces that women want to join. While the report speaks about women in all professional walks of life, I can't think of a quote that so clearly represents our profession, one that is so steeped in tradition and resistant to change. So if each of you could make one suggestion on how law firms or corporations can do this to specifically appeal to their female legal talent, what would that be? Erin, I'll start with you. Sure. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we're a business. And it has always impressed me that this law firm in particular has appreciated and embraced diversity of views. In order to have a productive and a successful business, I think you have to do that. And with points that both Mary and Fran have made today, and you, Kat, as well, you know, with more women in the workplace, with more millennials, with changing views and desires and goals of, of those folks, we as law firm leadership have to be open to it. If we're not, we're going to see talent walk out the door. And at the end of the day, we want a successful business, and, and that includes all these diverse views. Yes. Fran? Well, my suggestion is closely tied to Aaron's, and that is that you have to learn about your workforce and what motivates them. You know, I think having diversity in leadership positions is absolutely a worthy goal, but it's not always achievable quickly, and it's also not enough because the fact of the matter is that the top leadership at both law firms and corporations are probably not in tune with the priorities of female attorneys or male attorneys, for that matter, who are, you know, just five or ten years out of law school or less. And that those junior attorneys are obviously, we know, they're vital to your operations and to the future of the organization. So my advice would be to do something to connect with them, you know, whether it's surveys or focus groups. You know, at U.S. Bank, we conduct an annual survey of all employees, and some really big employee-facing changes have come about as a result of that survey. And I, there is just so much goodwill that comes from asking what people think and taking that into consideration and acting on it. Great. Mary? Well, this would be my suggestion. It is to provide professional development training and coaching for all lawyers with more than three years of experience. To my way of thinking, this is the point at which a developing attorney really becomes valuable to the firm and to its clients. Up to that point, you know, we're learning the law, we're making ourselves available to be helpful, but we haven't yet turned the corner in terms of that value proposition. So three years on, we want to really be supporting people in terms of offering them this professional development training and coaching. We want to ask for feedback on the value they receive from that service on a routine basis. It needs to be supportive. It should be personalized. It should be challenging. Uh, attorneys should be asked to stretch, grow, and commit to the firm's business and culture. And, you know, related to that, as Aaron said, you know, we are a business, and there are going to be certain people who are not fitting into our practice or our culture. And so we want to incorporate a component of this professional development should be counseling attorneys who aren't fitting in to help them make decisions about a different career path. I've seen a, a practice over the years that I think is very positive. If a lawyer isn't going to succeed in your organization and you want to maintain a positive relationship with that individual, help them find a new position help them to find a new opportunity, provide that kind of counseling and support to them. That way the firm has a friend, a supporter, and possibly a referral source for the rest of that individual's career. And that's extremely valuable. And it's humane. It's the right thing to do. Excellent guidelines for business owners and law firm leaders who are listening. I want to end on a personal note. I would like to extend an open invitation to any one of you and indeed all of you, to make any final inspirational comments for our listeners as they carve out or reflect upon their own successful legal career journeys. Erin? 
Um, you know, I think I, I don't want to really summarize everything we've said, but a, a point that Mary made that I had been thinking about in preparing for this call is that I think that keeping a positive outlook just generally for all of us uh, should not be underestimated. And I think that to draw together another point that we've discussed, if you're struggling with finding that positive outlook and conducting yourself in a positive manner towards your colleagues and others, it may well be that you don't like what you're doing. And, and in addition to looking at others, perhaps we need to take a, a look inside ourselves to, to really determine whether we're in the right spot. Great point, Fran. I think my advice is just to keep an open mind and remember that nothing has to be permanent. I think when attorneys think about making career moves, there's a lot of anxiety about whether they're going to be stuck with this decision forever, and you almost never are. I mean, I've seen people take time off to stay with their kids and then come back into the workforce to go off partnership track and go back on. I have even seen people go in-house and go back to the firm because they didn't like it. So I just think when we're talking about making a move, just to remember that anything is possible, nothing has to be permanent. Stay flexible. Mary? Well, I guess I'd like to kind of wrap up with this comment. This is not a dress rehearsal life that we're experiencing. This is the life we have. And so to anyone who feels kind of lost or is looking for direction in terms of career, it's important to find your own way to career success and satisfaction and start that search now. Look for helpers, look for people who can guide you, but don't delay because every life has got its own challenges, some, some more than others. But taking control of as much as we can of the path of our, our professional career and otherwise in our lives, that's really important. Well said. Littler shareholder Aaron Weber, U.S. Bank Assistant VP and Senior Corporate Counsel Fran Barbieri, and attorney coach, entrepreneur, and author Mary Kazmarek. Thank you all for joining us today to explore this topic. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. It was great. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us at podcasts at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.